Please be seated. We spoke recently with a church consultant who told us about an assembly that he'd been working with whose only purpose was to gather for a church service on Sunday mornings. As far as he could determine, a sizable crowd assembled once a week for worship. They went home and that was pretty much the end of it. Although the church was larger than ours, it had only one pastor and a church receptionist that's all they needed a preacher to deliver the sunday morning sermon to do funerals and to perform wedding ceremonies the new testament vision for life together as the body of christ we understand is far more involved than that and it's a lot messier as we grasp the true nature of the new testament church we realize That we are called out of this world to form a spiritual family. We are brothers and sisters in Christ called to love and to serve one another faithfully. Not merely to attend services which we hear, but to minister to one another as the family of God. We are indeed individual members of the body of Christ called to function together for the glory of our authoritative, life-giving head, the Lord Jesus Christ. The New Testament vision points us to live our daily lives with transparency, with accountability before one another. And that can get messy. A family living together without discipline. Do you see that as a loving home? It's not a loving home. It's a home that's filled with difficulties. It's not a healthy place to grow up. But a family that practices discipline deals with a lot of messes. In such a home, sin is exposed. It is confronted as loving parents refuse to let sin slide and are ever bringing children to account. In such a home, sin is confessed and it is repented of not only by children but by parents as well. And in such a home, sin is graciously forgiven. It's faced. It's seen. It's covered by the blood of Christ. In like manner, a healthy church that honors Christ's design for His body is sometimes a messy place because it's a place where people relationally come to understand one another's sin. They contend for the spiritual health of the members of the body by addressing sin in one another's lives, confessing one's own sin, seeking forgiveness from others, but also in the right way, confronting sin in one another's lives. That can be difficult. As we consider the Apostle Paul's second letter to the believers at Thessalonica again this morning, we witness a model demonstration of how to skillfully address sin in the lives of local church members. And as we read this correspondence, as Paul performs this task of confronting sin in the life of the Thessalonian church, it also teaches us several characteristics of what a healthy church looks like. So we're going to kind of play with these two tracks throughout the sermon today as we turn, and I invite you there to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. As we move into 2 Thessalonians 3, 
We remember from chapter 2, verses 13 through 17, we noted there the conclusion of the end time context described in chapter 2. So he's dealing with this false teaching that the day of the Lord had come, that the wrath of God was being poured out upon mankind. And Paul says, no, that's not the case. And he brings that section to a close in verses 13 through 17, drawing upon the earlier context, which ended in verse 10 with a reference to those who refuse to love the truth and so be saved. In verse 11, he refers to those who believe what is false. And in verse 12, of those who do not believe the truth. Remember that then in verse 13, the word but. But, you, but we ought always to give thanks to God for you. You, in contrast to these who reject the truth of God, have embraced that truth and it is transforming your lives. So verse 15 of chapter 2, stand firm and hold to the traditions that you were taught by us, either by spoken word or by our letter. There is the truth of God that came to you, you responded, you were transformed, now we plead with you to continue to embrace the truth. In contrast to those who reject it, to obey God's word. In chapter 3 now, verses 1 through 5, we enter into a new section. You see it there beginning with the word finally, a marker of transition in Paul's writings. We'll get back to that in a moment. But we have here an introduction to an extended word of instruction that you find at verse 6 and following. Paul has something to speak to the Thessalonian church about. He has a word of correction to offer to them, and that correction really carries through to the end of the book. Chapter 3 and verse 6 and following, now we command you, brothers, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. He has something to teach them and say to them. So ideally, we should really consider verses 1 through 5 with the rest of the chapter. We should just do all of chapter 3, but I've chosen to divide it in two. And today, to just look at the first five verses, which are the introduction to his rebuke to this church that he very much loves. As Paul labors to correct them for their health and for their good, he starts with these words of preparation. And it is a word in sanctified psychology. As he works with their mind and their spirit to prepare them to hear the rebuke that he has, we have much to learn. Now, let's remember, what is the problem? What's he moving to here? Remember that there were those in the Thessalonian church who needed to be corrected because they were refusing to work. We'll talk, Lord willing, next week more about why that was and how they were gaining money without working for it. But Paul says that does not accord with your calling in Christ. It's out of sync with a genuine follower of Christ to be getting money from someone else and not to be working for it when you're able to do so. Hadn't he talked to them about this before? Indeed he had. In the first book, he had corrected this very problem. He had strongly exhorted them to change this pattern of behavior that was the pattern for some in the assembly. Not for most, but there are some in the assembly who are living this way. And Paul says this needs to be changed. It hadn't changed. Now this creates a point of tension in his relationship with them. He must now rebuke them again. 
and encourage them to do what is right. This is very important to grasp. These first five verses then are an introduction to his confrontation. An introduction to his rebuke and his warning. We will learn much about how Paul prepares to deliver this word of instruction. So we will consider these words in the first five verses of this chapter along two related tracks. And in a sense, we almost have two sermons going on at once. But in the first track, we learn much about how Paul prepares the Thessalonians for his word of instruction. On this track, we will witness the psychology of confrontation in the life of one who is fully invested in the health of the local church. You'll notice he will not come with guns blazing, but he will very carefully prepare them to receive this difficult word. Secondly, in this discussion, as he prepares them to receive his rebuke, we learn four characteristics of a healthy church that Jesus is genuinely transforming. And it's Jesus who's doing this work. Notice the work that he's doing, and as we hear of this work, it will feed the roots of our own health as a local church. That's, the, that's my hope this morning. What a tremendous few words these are, filled with so much for us to gain. The first characteristic that we see of a healthy church as He works to build them up and encourage them is that a healthy church will have a zeal for the spread of the Gospel. There will be a zealous desire for the Gospel to have success. Chapter 3, verse 1, he says, Finally, brothers, pray for us that the word of the Lord may speed ahead and be honored, as happened among you, and that we may be delivered from wicked and evil men, for not all have faith. Let's pick this apart for a minute. Maybe a couple minutes. But finally, finally, Paul commonly employs this, the Greek word that's translated finally here in his writings to signal that he has come to the last major consideration of his letter. Often his most important. Now there's people who miss this. Critics of the Bible say this was thrown in here by somebody else. It doesn't fit. He's coming to conclusion. And then in verse 6 he picks up a whole other topic. So someone else must have put this in there. It's not original. They're completely missing the point of how the word finally works in the writings of Paul. Actually, he's moving with this word to the most important point, in some sense, of this letter. It's not a premature conclusion. You might read it and say, finally, brothers, pray for us. He's starting to wind up the book. And then he comes to chapter, or verse 6 and he says, now we command you, brothers, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Some might say, well, well what Paul did is he just forgot something. So he was starting this conclusion. It's like, oh, rats, I forgot. I need to talk to them about this important point. I've got to throw this in now at the end. And, you know, it's not in a computer. You can't go back and rewrite it. So, oh, well, I'll just tag this on at the end. Not at all. And if we don't catch this, we really miss a lot of the power of these first five verses. What he is doing is in finally, he's moving to this final word of rebuke. What must be corrected for the health of the church As he works his way there, there's these intervening words that prepare them to receive that rebuke. Now considering verses 1 and 2, let's think on that psychology track, understood in the best sense of the word, 
how he works with their mind to prepare them for this correction. You notice that Paul wisely requests prayer for whom? For himself. In verses 16 and 17 of chapter 2, he prays for them. Here in 3.1, Paul humbly says, I need prayer too. Will you pray for me? He solicits their intercessory prayers as fellow workers with him in the spread of the gospel. Now, Paul's not playing games here. He genuinely longs for their prayers, their intercessory prayers that the gospel would go forward. But there's wisdom and skill here in how he prepares for the rebuke. I want you to pray for me in my work as I spread the gospel. So we learn on that other track, that second track, what does it say about a healthy church? Spiritually healthy churches have a zeal for the spread of the gospel. He's seeking to build them up in the faith, asking for their prayers as he works to correct, but indeed speaking to them here about their need to participate in the spread of the gospel through earnest prayer. Keep on praying for us, literally, that the word of the Lord may speed ahead and be honored. The allusion here is to a runner winning a race, being crowned with the victor's wreath, or perhaps to the herald who delivers good news and is honored because he's delivered that news. So it is here with the gospel. Paul encourages the Thessalonians to join him in praying that the gospel would spread rapidly and would conquer souls. This is our calling. This will be a characteristic of a healthy church. A church that is zealous to see the gospel spread throughout this world. This is our labor individually as we come before the Lord. Is this part of your private devotional life? Do you bring prayers to the Lord seeking that the gospel would spread to places where it's never been known? This should be an earnest desire that we have in our daily lives. It should mark our prayer life. And then as a church, this is one of our major tasks as we support those whom we we have partnered with throughout the world to spread the gospel. We think of the days we prayed for them earlier this morning. That wasn't ritual. The prayer for the days and the ministry that they have there and the partnership that we have with them in the gospel, that wasn't ritual. That was a laboring as a church for the spread of the gospel. As we think of the farmers and the Sinkavichus, as we think of the folks and sending them out, we need to be bathing the ministry of these evangelists in prayer that God would enable the gospel to run through their words and to conquer souls. This is part of our task on Wednesday nights as we come. There is a section in our prayers where we pour out our lives and our prayers for the spread of the gospel. Again, that's not ritual. This is a very significant piece of our all-night prayer meeting that's coming in January as we prepare our minds for that, that spiritual endeavor to plead with God to spread the gospel. Where there is a church that is dull, to the spread of the gospel, there you will find a church that is lacking in health. What Christ is producing in the lives of vibrant churches is a passion for the spread of this truth. 
You know, if you say, I, I really, that's just not a prayer that I offer. That's not part of my private prayer life. I don't participate in that within the congregation. I don't really think in those terms very much, honestly. It really doesn't mark my prayer life. Let me say this carefully, but pointedly. You don't have Jesus' agenda. Because that's what Jesus is doing. The ascended Christ is calling out a people for His own. It is His desire to contend for the glory of His name and to proclaim this Gospel to all people. That's what the risen Christ is doing today. We need to join with Him in our prayers to labor as a, as a body to see this Gospel spread. To give ourselves to this task. He adds that phrase here, as happened among you. As happened is supplied by our English translators. The idea is actually timeless. There's no verb here. The message that Jesus Christ died to pay the penalty of sin and rose in victory over sin and death was a message that they had trusted. They had seen Christ crucified in the message of the Gospel. They had come to embrace that death in their place and His resurrection power. And for all who put their personal trust in that message, for all who turn from their sin and false worship, the saving power of Jesus gives them new spiritual life. This is your life, Paul says to them. Pray that the Gospel would spread as it spread to you, as it found and conquered you in your sin. And so pray for me, he says. And on the negative side, there are people who want to hit us. There are people who want to harm us. For not all have faith, he says. Pray that we would be delivered from wicked and evil men. There are people who are intent on stopping Paul and his preaching of the Gospel and the team that's with him there in Corinth. Pray, he says, pray for us that these people would be stopped and the Gospel would go unhindered to the lost. For not all have faith, he says. That means not everyone trusts the Gospel, I think is the meaning. And you say, well, no kidding. Why would Paul put it that way? Not everybody embraces the Gospel? I mean, that's, that, isn't that obvious? It's, it, he employs a literary device here of grossly understating reality. And he does so for a reason that we just can't quite capture in the English text. But in the original text, what he actually does here is to put two words together. The word faith here in verse 2, and the word faithfulness in verse 3 go right together. You couldn't miss it if you're reading it in the Greek. It's a figure speech, a play on words, I should say. And it makes for messy English, so we can't really put it that way in the English text. But we might read it this way, For not all have faith, faithful but is the Lord. You just can't put but after faithful in English. That just doesn't work. But in the Greek, it's actually that way. And so it reads, For not all have faith, faithful but is the Lord. They couldn't miss that and what he's saying here. Why does he understate this? Not all have faith. No kidding. It's a literary device to point to the faithfulness of Christ. There are people who are unfaithful to the Word of God who are persecuting us. Pray that they be stopped. Pray that they be hindered. But our Lord is faithful. Christ is faithful. And so it leads us to the second idea. Those 
who are healthy churches are infused with a zeal to spread the gospel of Christ. They're enthused with an understanding that it is spreading. Secondly, they are marked by perseverance of believers in the faith. But the Lord is faithful, verse 3. He will establish you and guard you against the evil one. He will uphold your faith. Now, let's think of the Thessalonian context. They are suffering genuine persecution. There is secondly a temptation, the temptation that some in the assembly are caving into, that is they are living in a manner that's not worthy of their calling in Christ. Satan as is at work among them. But in light of these challenges, Paul expresses the conviction that God will be faithful to them and he will guard them as the great shepherd. He will guard them against Satan. I have confidence the Lord is faithful. He is faithful and He will guard you against the evil one. There's two convictions we must have as biblical believers about Satan. The first is that Satan is real. And that his powers and his forces are strong. The second, however, is that Jesus Christ has won the victory over Satan and cannot be overcome by him. When you trust Jesus as your Savior from sin and hell, He becomes your intercessor. He goes to prayer to the Father for you, praying in your behalf. He also becomes your faithful shepherd, guarding you against Satan's onslaught. Remember what Jesus said to Peter? Satan has asked to sift you like wheat, but I have prayed for you. Jesus interceding for His own, pleading our cause before the Father and keeping us from Satan's power. Satan can hinder us. Satan can tempt us. But if we are genuine believers, we can know that Jesus will guard us against the evil one. We can have confidence in this, in Him, as we have confidence then in one another. A genuine believer will continue in the faith. Greater is He who is in us than he who is in the world. And so what this teaches us about the health of the church is that Paul expresses his confidence that these believers will persevere, which is then a key characteristic of a healthy church. There is persevering faith. You see evidences in the assembly of people under the attack of Satan, externally and internally in temptation, but their faith continues. They continue to trust God. They continue to believe His Word. Genuine faith will not prove empty. Satan will not win the battle for our souls. We will endure to the end trusting in Jesus if we have that genuine faith. And the result, our faith, as we see here in verse 3, will be established as genuine. It does not disintegrate as false faith always does. So a healthy church is marked by the continuing belief, the persevering endurance of believers in Christ. Now let's move off of that key characteristic and come back to the psychology of rebuke. Do you see it here? Paul draws their attention to the battle against sin and Satan and expresses confidence that they will overcome to the glory of God 
as he prepares to tell them what they must do to, to the glory of God. I trust in God's power over Satan. Third characteristic we find in verse 4, and that is obedience to the apostolic word. Verse 4, and we have confidence in the Lord about you that you are doing and will do the things that we command. Paul now positions his guns, so to speak, as he prepares to confront the Thessalonians with the spiritual mess in this assembly. Notice the word command here in verse 4. I have confidence you will do the things we command. Then in verse 6, we command you, brothers. And he tells them what he commands. I, again, it's, just, it's unbelievable that people think these verses are inserted and weren't written by Paul. There's a direct connection to what he's doing. I'm getting ready to command you, but notice how he goes at it. Notice the psychology of it. I have absolute confidence that you are going to do what we command you to do. Greek scholars refer to what Paul is doing here as captatio benevolente. Doesn't that just change your day? That's a, that's a fa- it's a fancy phrase, but it says this. It says that this is so common they put a name to it. It's a fancy phrase that means that he offers a word of praise to his hearers in order to gain a favorable hearing from them as he moves to reiterate his challenge against idleness in the assembly. Paul's confidence that they will obey his spiritual instruction obviously is carrying imperatival force, that it is a a, a sort of subtle command. We can understand this. Imagine a teacher before a, a class of young people, and the teacher says before handing out a test, I have absolute confidence in you as a class that no one will cheat on this test. Now that's just a nice and subtle way of saying don't cheat, right? But it comes across in a certain way. It appeals to that individual's responsibility. I have confidence that no one in this class will cheat on this test. In like manner, Paul is gently calling them to obey his command as Christ's apostle. Paul could pull rank at times. There were times he just directly confronted people. But he did that very carefully and he does not do that here. He trusts in them because of the power of Christ. He trusts more accurately in the power of Christ working in them to honor the godly commands of Christ's representatives. Namely here of himself. I have this confidence in the Lord about you, you will do the things that we command. It's pretty clear to see the psychology of it as he appeals to them to be responsible in what he has soon to say to them in verse 6. But we also see then again this characteristic of a healthy church. It is obedience to the apostolic word. A healthy, thriving church is a community of believers who are actively pursuing obedience to the Word of God in their daily lives. And there's evidences that they have oriented their life to receive the authoritative Word of God and that they willingly, desirously seek to obey it. They don't always do so. But when they don't do so, they repent and confess their sins. But they want to do so. They strive to do so. It is a characteristic... Characteristic that they obey the word. 
they understand in a healthy church. They understand that God's Word is never a mere suggestion. It is not friendly advice that can be taken or left. God's Word is truth. Genuine believers know this, and they willingly order their lives by it. And within the messiness of a local church that really knows one another and is striving to help one another persevere in the faith, sometimes this is exposed, and it's not pretty. I can picture specific scenes with specific statements of people who have walked within the context of this assembly through the years, and it's a grief. But the Word of God is laid out. What they are doing and how they are living in their life is at odds with it. And they say that's just the way it has to be. In so many words, and sometimes even in these specific words, I have heard people say, that's how it's supposed to be, but it's different for me. That's a horror we need to expose in one another in the most gentle and careful and appropriate way. But to realize that when a believer knows what God's Word says, but says, I have some excuse for not obeying it, it doesn't apply to me. We have to love enough to respond. And that, I think, is where Paul is going. With a heart filled with concern. There is a behavior pattern within the assembly and there is an acceptance within the assembly of this behavior pattern. He knows that he needs to address this. And he says, I have confidence you will obey the Word of God. But you need to hear my command. The fourth characteristic in this introduction we find in verse 5, and that is spiritual sustenance from God. Now he slips in a prayer. Just a breath of prayer. May the Lord direct your hearts to the love of God and to the steadfastness of Christ. It's hard to know what he even means by that. Is the love of God and the steadfastness of Christ God's love for us and Christ's steadfastness in enduring the cross? Or is he saying that, the, that he hopes that these qualities will be seen in them? that they would grow to love as God loves and endure as Jesus endures. Both, obviously, are, are fine ideas. But I would tentatively take it as a prayer that the believer would grow increasingly drawn to the Father's love and the Son's steadfastness in enduring the cross for us, that we would put our roots deeply into that love and into that endurance. And thus, of course, then emulate it. Did you hear how the songs today were calibrated to do just that? They were structured. The words, as we chose those words and those songs to put together for this service, they were meant to deepen us as a church in a knowledge of the love of God and the steadfastness of Christ and enduring the cross. In the first service, I was rebuked in my own spirit thinking of my prayers this day and how every prayer I think that I offered before I came into church today was simply oriented to make me a faithful servant of Your Word. 
Now that's a good prayer. And I want to keep praying that prayer. But I was rebuked by the words of the songs we sung today to realize I need to also pray. Let me come to the worship of God's people and honor you and praise you and worship in spirit and in truth. We need to root ourselves in the love of God and in the steadfast endurance of Christ who endured the cross. To come to value these ideas. And as a body, our health will be served. Our spiritual vitality will be strengthened only when we root ourselves there. Not when we talk about how great we are or what we have accomplished. Not simply when we cry and weep with one another over trials, which is a good thing to do. But as we come to realize what Christ has done for us, in that is our strength. And in that alone. To the psychology of it, just before he launches into a word of correction, Paul assures the Thessalonians that he is praying for them. Do you think that's a mistake? I am praying for you that you would see the glories of salvation in Christ. He prays that they would grow in their faith and what he's about to command the church to do in verse 6 is crucial to that growth. Now, we, I, I don't do this very often, but I'm very anxious with these verses that we would deepen the roots of our, of our faith as a church, that we would grow in our health as an assembly. And so I'm going to just repeat what we've considered, but I don't do so lightly. Let us review this because we have, like I said, almost two themes going on at once. Let's review briefly. The evidences of a healthy church, one, is a zeal for the spread of the gospel. A local church is not merely a dispenser of worship services. A healthy church is a fellowship of like-minded believers who are zealous for the spread of the gospel to all people groups on earth. It is a fraternity of prayer warriors who labor together before the throne of grace, pleading with God to spread the gospel freely such that it conquers hearts for Christ's kingdom and glory. There should be then an evidence in our assembly that we're that kind of church. That we are a praying people who are zealous for the spread of the gospel. We've got nothing without that. Because if we don't have that, we don't have Jesus' agenda. Secondly, we would be marked then by the enduring faith of God's people. A healthy church is one in which the faith of God's people endures through whatever Satan throws at us. Do we realize that then as a church when there are trials, when there are temptations, when there is sin, these are messy things, but they are all opportunities to discern real living faith. A church that faces difficulties and the people run away is a church that's seeking to use God to get what they want. And as soon as God withholds what they want, they walk away from the faith. 
But a vibrant church is one in which people face death and disease and trial and difficulty and temptation and they keep on trusting. They keep depending on God's Word. Thirdly, obedience to the apostolic Word. A healthy church is not a church that merely teaches the truth of God's Word faithfully. That is a matter of utmost importance. But a healthy church is one that also obeys God's Word. It lives the truth in daily life. The necessity then is that we provide mutual watch care for one another. That we know one another's lives. That we're willing to say, this needs to stop. That we're willing to encourage, saying, this is so encouraging. I praise God for this grace in your life. Number four, spiritual sustenance from God. Healthy local churches are filled with people whose hearts are rooted in the love of God and in the endurance of Christ. We find our source, our strength, not in what we can perform religiously, but in what Christ has done for us. We're not people of fickle faith. We're not people who know God We're not people who fail to know God, but we are sustained by God. Does this mark our church? Do we see this as a vision of health? Moving then to that second track, and here I'll not repeat so much as apply But when we think of psychology of ministry to one another in the body of Christ, you've got to start with the first. You have to start with what a healthy church is. It's not a place to simply show up and listen to sermons. It's a place where we work together in the messiness of life to build one another up in the faith. If we're not there, then we can't move to the next. But here now, we consider the skill of the Apostle Paul as he works to encourage and rebuke this assembly. What do we learn? Can you miss this? Is this possible to miss the patience of Paul here? How he laboriously, almost painstakingly, works carefully to prepare as he delivers this message of rebuke. We see his patience. There's a mess to clean up in the church. But Paul is in no hurry as he works toward addressing that mess. He doesn't drop a bombshell and just move on. He could say, rightly, listen people, I've talked to you about this before. You didn't do what I told you to do. Get your act together and get these people to work. He doesn't say that, does he? Will you pray for me? Let's establish that first. I I need your prayers. I'm praying for you. I have confidence that you will obey the word of the Lord. I have confidence in the faithfulness of God that he will help you to resist Satan. See where he's going. God is at work in your life to obey his word. I now need to introduce that word and it's going to hurt. But patiently he works for a hearing. Secondly, Paul labors to identify with the Thessalonians as fellow heirs in the faith. 
He does not look down on them from his high apostolic horse and shout orders. He celebrates God's work in their lives and he views them as partners in his work as an evangelist. We're in this together as brothers and sisters in Christ. So he identifies evidences of God's sanctifying power in their lives. He rejoices in those evidences and he treats them indeed as siblings in the Lord. Thirdly, Paul works hard to express what is right in the Thessalonian church before he corrects what is wrong. And what is right is rooted in who Christ is and what He has accomplished. But he builds them up in the faith. Paul is about to administer the butt pill. What is the butt pill? B-U-T pill. This is the good that I see in you. But, this has to change. Do you know that, parents? Do we know that, Sunday school teachers, youth leaders? Do we know that, elders of the church? Or do we just cram the butt pill down the throat? Here's what's wrong. Paul very carefully says, here's what's right. But. And when he gets to the but, They've identified with one another. He's built them up in the faith. He's encouraged them in the faith. He's patiently prepared for this word. And then he administers the corrective word. Love greases that pill with praise and thanksgiving. Now Paul walks a careful line here. He is not lying. He's not just saying nice things to get them ready. He's not using flattery. He's not brown-nosing or buttering them up or whatever phrase you want to use. This is honest assessment of what is good. Like a father commending his child for good, knowing all along that he's about to correct them. He identifies with them. He prays for them. He encourages them. He sees what is right. And then he delivers this rebuke. Now Paul's dealing with a messy situation here and he knows it could blow the church apart. What does he do? Does he back off? Does he just let it go and let God take care of this? I don't want to risk offending these people. That's not what he does. Does he come on the other hand with guns blazing and set them right and put them in their place and get this all straightened out real quickly with very few words? Nope. He loves them enough to correct their behavior. But he does so patiently, graciously, humbly. We're witnessing here spiritual skill. The skill of a spiritual surgeon who with great and patient, gentle care slices open the body that he might perform the necessary correction for the health of that body. May that kind of skill mark us. And may these evidences, these characteristics of grace be evident in our assembly to the glory of God. Let's pray to that end.
Our Father, we thank You for what You're doing in this church. I thank You for the evidences of Your grace that are so operative, for Your transforming power, changing lives, dramatically transforming affections, helping people little by little root out sin. I thank You for the evidence that there is a body of believers here who want to walk in faith and in faithfulness to You. Like the Thessalonians, we too have trusted the Gospel. And the risen and reigning Christ is doing a work in this assembly. For this I praise You. He is our only hope. He is our sustaining strength. It is Your love for us in Christ that provides the soil in which the roots of this church are thriving. We pray, Father, to this end that You will continue to unify and deepen and strengthen and bless. Father, where we need to root out sin, may we be faithful to do so as an assembly and as individuals. May we confess our sins and strive to be the church that You want us to be. And God, I pray that You would create a skill from elders who minister rebukes on the basis of Scripture to every one of us as we seek to encourage one another in the faith, give us this patience. Give us this skill. Grant us the ability to learn how to graciously use speech. Not as a sword, but as a surgeon's scalpel. That we might cut and wound in order to heal. Teach us the skill. And again we pray in behalf of anyone who is separated from this love of Christ because they walk in disobedience to the Gospel. I pray that they'd be rebuked in their soul and that You would show them their need to submit to Your Word and to obey the Gospel of Christ. We pray to this end in His name. Amen. Let's stand together as we sing. Amen. We'll sing together a song we sang earlier, Beneath the Cross of Jesus. Before we do, if I could just point your attention to the theme of this song about life together as believers. The first verse we see the personal uh, pronoun, the possessive pronoun I used is the church is made up of individuals who stand beneath the cross of Christ. And the second, our attention turns towards that family of Christ. And by the third verse, we're singing collectively as believers how we stand together beneath the cross of Christ. Let's sing it together. Beneath the cross of Jesus I find the place to stand and wonder at such truths that love
the cross of Jesus is found. Where brought 